I'm Carrie Dozer, and this is TGen Talks. Valley fever, formerly known as coccidioidomycosis, or coxy for short, is an illness caused by a fungus that lives in the soil here in the Southwest. Because it isn't widely known in areas where the fungus does not grow, it can be misdiagnosed and hard to treat. The fungus, typically only found in desert areas, has recently spread, and some scientists have said climate change is to blame. But what if the fungus showing up someplace other than the desert isn't a new phenomenon at all, rather a very old one? In this episode of TGen Talks, we meet again with Dr. David Engelthaler, the director of the Pathogen Genomics Division at TGen North. Dave, thanks for coming down to talk with us once again about valley fever. You bet. Hi, Carrie. As you know, we do spend a lot of time on valley fever. It is Arizona's disease. Uh, and it is starting to pop up in some different places, uh, certainly in the, in the western part of the United States. Uh, one of those places is up in Washington State, which didn't make any sense because we know this is a desert fungus. It mm-hmm. gets in the air in the desert and uh, blows around and we breathe it in. Why is it up in Washington? And so naturally, a lot of people are concerned that, well, maybe it's because of global warming, climate change. The environment's changing enough that now this fungus is spreading. Uh, and, and in fact, that's become part of the kind of the popular mythology about this now. And so really want to dive deep into that and see if that's what's happening with this fungus. And is that because, in part, a television show? Yeah, I think it's a show on HBO called The Last of Us, which is a... Um, a kind of end of the world zombie apocalypse, but it's be- from a fungal pathogen that is spreading and, and potentially spreading because the environment changed. So people are th- thinking about the actual fungal diseases we have, like valley fever, and is that changing or is the environment changing enough that it, the disease is spreading? So is the popular culture or the, the coverage on the news the reason you decided to ask the question or were other people asking at the same time? You know, this is something we've been looking at for, for years, and, and it's a hypothesis that I've been working on is that we know that valley fever is, uh, has been found in, in places like archaeological digs, where um, archaeology students have uh, you know, been going through uh, a site, and then they end up getting exposed to valley fever completely unexpected. They've never had it before, and then you get an outbreak. And that so, could be anywhere. Yeah, and, and that's in, been in a number of places, Northern California, uh, in Arizona, it's, it's occurred, it's occurred up in Northern Utah as well. And the thought is, okay, well, they're uncovering, or, or the thought is, is that the fungus was there in these archaeological sites, and they're getting exposed. So archaeology students get lessons on how to be careful and not get exposed to valley fever now. But the, the point is, is the valley fever fungus was there at those sites. How did it get there? And was it, has it been just recently spreading because of climate change? Or has it been there all along and we're just kind of uncovering it as we're doing these kind of uh, archaeological investigations? All right. So you've got a question, but you've got a lot of questions. When do you start deciding to devote a good portion of your time to answering this one? And how do you go about it? Yeah, well, what we got to do is look at all the different types of data uh, and evidence that's available out there to understand uh, what's the most likely reason this happened. So it's my contention that Valley Fever is now up in Washington State. It has been up there for a very long time. We think thousands of years. Uh, we know this fungus is really, really old. It, it's millions of years old in the Southwest, but up there, probably only thousands of years. And we can do that because we can look at the genome and we can look at the mutations and kind of put a, what we call a molecular clock on it and try to figure out how old the strains are in the local region. And really, the data is telling us that those strains up there in Washington State are really a few thousand years old. 
So people read about carbon dating of bones. Is that what you're doing with the virus? It's a very similar thing. In, in this case with the fungus, uh, we're actually able to look at the number of mutations and how how fast those mutations occur. And then we can kind of use some math and statistics to go backwards to get a pretty good estimate of how old something is. And you said only thousands of years old, which means only thousands is a fairly young it's young for a fungus. Is that true? <laughs> it's young for a fungus, but it hasn't been occurring in, say, the last 50 to 100 years where we might link it to more modern climate change. Uh, we think that, and, and certainly uh, thousands of years would be before, um, you know, the, the um, Europeans came over to the Western Hemisphere. So this was likely back when indigenous populations were here uh, and... Um, and potentially they may have been moving the fungus around, and we think that might have been what happened. So you don't write this paper yourself, and you don't do the research yourself. Who joined you in this mission to answer the question? Yeah, well, I, I had a, a couple of uh, great co-authors, uh, Dr. Arturo Casadevall, who's a world-renowned immunologist uh, and fungal expert at Johns Hopkins University, and I've written with him in the past, and he's a, just a tremendous thinker, and it's been a lot of fun to kind of explore these ideas with him. And then we also um, brought in Dr. Jim Chatters, uh, who is a paleontologist, archaeologist, and, and actually a paleoclimatologist. And he spent a lot of time up there and in, 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 in still operates up in the Washington region. And I invited him to join in into this investigation. And we just kind of went through what is all the data that's available to us and what makes the most sense. I giggled a little when you said paleoclimatologist because that's a combination of, uh, of disciplines <laughs> that I've never heard before. Are there many of him or is he the only one? <laughs> no, I'm sure that there are many of him, but you can probably count them on your fingers yeah. uh, around the world. Really trying to decipher based off what we understand about uh, plant life and we can see how uh, waters rose and, and uh, decreased and, and where rainfall was occurring, et cetera, thousands to hundreds of thousands of years ago. And that can get us a pretty good picture of what was happening well before uh, people were around to document it. All right. So you gather your evidence and you present a paper. Where do you present it? Who listens? And who finally decides whether or not you've convinced um, the body of science that that you, in fact, your hypothesis is correct? That's, that's a great question. So this really is a hypothesis piece where we then we provide a lot of evidence. Then we look at alternate hypotheses and provide um, the available evidence for those. And it, it really does look like the most likely scenario is that um, the valley fever fungus moved up there uh, probably with an infected person uh, from the San Joaquin Valley area. Um, it's, that's what the strains are most closely related to. In fact, San Joaquin Valley is what the valley fever is named after. Not us. Not, not the Valley of the Sun, but it, it's, it's highly endemic in both places. Sure. Uh, and, and it looks like those strains somehow got up there. Most likely an individual was infected. Perhaps a dog was infected uh, and was um, moved up to the, the Washington State area. And that happened through trade and travel, uh, which was happening thousands of years ago with uh, the, the different indigenous populations that were in the Western United States. So what's the result of the paper? You present the paper, and then do, do other researchers pick it up where you left it off and try to decide to either prove or disprove your hypothesis? What happens next? Yeah, to, maybe to, to better answer the, the question is, 
we, we really can't prove this is exactly what happened. We don't have empirical data. We can't go back in time. Uh, but what we can do is continue to look at the available data. And if we don't see that this is spreading in outlying regions of Washington or, or elsewhere in the Pacific Northwest, it's pretty good evidence that we still have this likely a single introduction event thousands of years ago. Uh, we, we try to look for other evidence that would help negate this hypothesis. And if that happens, then then yeah, we can start to maybe generate new hypothesis. But for now, we, we wanted to put something out there that made sense biologically. It made sense with the genomic timeline. Uh, it made sense with uh, the epidemiology of this fungus. Uh, and, I, and I think that's what we've done. Regardless the reasons why valley fever has spread to places like Washington, what do we do about the actual valley yeah, fever? Yeah. Well, uh, here's here's one thing is to that might be useful for others is if we can understand that um, you know things like climate change don't automatically make everything worse, and and that you know we we frequently do use climate change as either the reason or the excuse for a lot of bad things that happen. Uh, in in this particular case, there's been a, a a fair amount of news coverage and others thinking that uh, this fungus is. Uh, spreading, and we can't do anything about it because of climate change. It's just going to get worse, and we're going to have more cases all over. I don't think that that's what's happening, and I, I do think that uh, that's useful for people to know that it's that not everybody's at risk, and and we can better pinpoint where um, Coxie actually is and spend resources there educating healthcare professionals, educating uh, the public on what what you can do to to maybe limit your exposure and and then the healthcare providers and what they can do and what they should be on the lookout for. You don't treat people with valley fever, but you know more about it than most physicians. Is it true that in regions like like Arizona and the San Joaquin Valley that, you know, local providers, which is actually where people are getting their health care, know more about it and that some physicians in other parts of the country have never seen it, know very little about it and therefore aren't fit to treat it? Yeah, I you know, you would think that we would have all the world's experts, or at least all the doctors here would be experts in valley fever because it is so prevalent in, in Arizona, especially in uh, in the, the southern part of the state. Uh, and it turns out every time we do a study, there is a, a lot of misinformation and a lack of testing uh, for suspect patients, uh, people walking around uh, with a community-acquired pneumonia and doctors not testing for it, and they're, they're trying to treat it with antibiotics and it's not working. So we still see that a very large percentage of these patients never get tested, and, and the right ones then oftentimes don't get treated until it gets maybe more serious. So there's still a lot of physician education to happen, even in an endemic area. But we also know that Coxie shows up all over the country in patients, and that's because they come out to the West uh, for travel to go to the Grand Canyon or, or to, to California. They get exposed uh, and then go back. And doctors certainly aren't looking for it in Minnesota and Michigan and in New York and a lot of places that they should because they have people that travel uh, and, and they should know where their patients have gone to. And if they've been to the Southwest and they have kind of a walking pneumonia, they should be testing for Coxie. What is the work that you do day to day uh, do to help add to the body of knowledge about how to treat valley fever? I mean, at the end of the day, we want to treat it better, um, not just find out where it's going. Yeah, that's, that's great. We have um, at TGen really been focused on valley fever for 15 plus years. We, we see it as, as I mentioned, Arizona's disease. So we got to really throw everything we can at it. So we have developed the only um, molecular test that's been approved by the FDA for valley fever. And uh, we're going to have that in our CLIA lab 
uh, so we can test patients soon and, and hopefully others can use it as well. Uh, we have a team that's been working on trying to find better targets for possible vaccines because this is um, really a, a disease we should be vaccinating for uh, because people are continually being exposed. If you're coming to the Southwest, you're going to be exposed. Mm -hmm. Most of us won't have a bad bout of it, but we still should have vaccine for it. And TGen is using its um, next generation tools and technology to help find targets there. And we're just helping to better understand uh, where exactly people are at risk. So we're doing air filter monitoring all over uh, the metropolitan Phoenix area and trying to understand what which places are hot spots and what part of the year is really important to be looking for this. As a guy who's made a life out of studying microbiomes and fungus and strange bugs that infect us, do you find it difficult that mainstream media or now the million uh, of different choices of things that people can watch at home and be frightened by has grown <laughs> So so that it seems that we can't watch much of anything without seeing the end of the world. Does that make your job harder? <laughs> well, possibly. Maybe at least the, the messaging about this. I mean, I, I do believe, um, you know, because a lot of, you know, media wants something exciting, but it end up, ends up turning us all into catastrophists. Like, this is the worst thing. And you remember when MPOX, or what was called monkeypox, came out. Lots of people thought that was, a, you know, the next big thing. And it yeah. was never really a risk to the general public. We didn't know that because we weren't getting great information out. So it is becoming more difficult. Uh, some people are more in tune and looking out for the next pandemic. And other people are less in tune and less likely to believe that they got to worry about a new public health problem. So, yeah, we, we've got a, a lot of work ahead of us. So as someone who knows more about these diseases and, and these fungi than the director or the creator of the, the serial, the special, whatever it is, do you often watch them with, with a sense of humor? Do you often watch them and think, this is irresponsible? Yeah, well, just, just a, a quick note on the, the show, The Last of Us, that is about a... Um, a type of fungus that's called cordyceps fungus, which are actually these really devastating fungi if you're an insect. They, they don't really infect <laughs> mammals. They can't. It's just, it's just not capable. They just don't have the right um, genomic material to do something like that. And we don't see it evolving that way. Uh, but it is, uh, it is something that we've talked about. You know, if there was ever a zombie apocalypse, that would be a really nasty one. And, and they've, they've made a, a, a pretty interesting TV show about it, but that's all it is. It's still just a TV show. Anything that you watch that is in that genre or that realm that you find entertaining or particularly correct <laughs> scientifically accurate um yeah i mean it's actually it was hard to find anything correct just about the pandemic which was right. real life happening i do find it entertaining uh, i do um i do find these shows interesting because it helps us sometimes i'm not sure if it did during the <laughs> pandemic helps us think through these kind of emergencies I'd, li I'd like to think about the epidemiology and how these diseases can move around but also how do people respond uh, we know uh, now firsthand how people respond to contagions and their either their absolute fear of them or complete lack of fear of them. Uh, and that makes it very difficult to have um, really good policy that works across the society and, and is, is most effective in our communities because we realize as humans, we're all very different and we respond to things very differently. Yeah, for sure. Anything else, anything I missed, anything else you want to share about your hypothesis or where you hope this goes? Well, I, I hoping that uh, we can actually spend a, a little more time looking at those spots where we know 
the soil conditions and, and the climate conditions are good for coccy to grow. And maybe there are archaeological sites. Uh, and those are going to be potentially areas where we can look for high risk. Um, I think we can stop worrying that this is just going to spread like a wave across the western United States. I don't see any evidence for that. Uh, it doesn't mean it's not important. It doesn't mean that we're not going to still spend a, a lot of time on this particular disease and, and others to see where we could use genomics to, again, improve diagnostics, uh, therapies, and vaccines. It seems like whatever the effects or causes of climate change, one thing that has happened is that soil is eroding in places that it wasn't eroding before. Uh, there, were, there are no lakes where there were lakes. So there are, simply put, a lot more places for archaeologists to start digging who might be closer to <laughs> finding what they're looking for. So if you can pinpoint where it might be more dangerous, at least those people can be on alert. Yeah, one, one of the things, um, and, and we point this out too in, in the study, is that while um, climate change may not be pushing some of these pathogens into new areas, they might be starting to reveal where they were because of the, the changing environmental conditions. Pretty interesting. Good luck. Thanks, Carrie. For more on TGen's research, go to tgen.org news. The Translational Genomics Research Institute, part of City of Hope, is an Arizona-based nonprofit medical research institution dedicated to conducting groundbreaking research with life-changing results. You can find more of these podcasts at tgen.org slash tgentalks, Apple and Spotify, and most podcast platforms. For TGen Talks, I'm Carrie Dozer.